0: Warning. The following episode contains discussion of neglect, abuse, violence, death, and other harms related to institutionalization. Please, take care. Please also note that the views expressed in this episode are those of the speakers, and do not necessarily represent the positions or values of Community Living Ontario.
1: Hello, you're listening to season one of the Community Unmuted podcast. I'm your host, Nico Papella. And today I'm speaking to Megan Linton. Megan is a PhD student, writer and researcher. Her research uses critical disability and carceral studies to challenge disability institutionalization. Megan is also the creator and host of the Invisible Institutions podcast. In my conversation with Megan, we address issues with long-term care, the importance of community, how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted people in institutions, and more. Enjoy the episode. It's funny how we're talking about uh, long-term care in our conversation because, as you know, the council's putting together a presentation on aging and long-term care for the conference. So I actually listened to your podcast uh, on the uh, episode for long-term care, which is where I'm going to kind of base some of my questions off of um, because I found it really intriguing listening to the stories that you interviewed people on about their experiences and, like, how difficult it is just when you don't understand being in there at a younger age and what it might look like. So um, I'll start off with, like, one of the things that stood out to me was that the number of people living in long-term care in Canada, over 150,000, it doesn't, it seems... I, I would never imagine it being that high of a number. Like, that's how many people would be across
2: Canada living in LTC. Absolutely. There are so many people across Canada living in long term care in a way that I feel like we don't really understand. And I think, like, a big part of that is because you can't see people who live in long-term care frequently and especially right now where it's like institutions are used to hide people away. And so we really see that with like the size of the disabled population living in long-term care.
1: And then the other statistic about there being more than 13,000 people under the age of 65 that are living in long-term care. Obviously that number is nothing compared to the whole number of, Canada, but it still seems like a high number alone.
2: Yeah, and I do think that it is a pretty significant number, even in context of the larger 150,000 people, because I think it shows really how much disability is a part of um, the long-term care system, because so often we just think about long-term care as being for older people. So even though it's like 10% of the population or 1% of the population um that are under the age of 65 it it shows like the much bigger picture which is that long-term care institutions are sites of disability first and foremost
1: mhm and then i noticed in your when i was listening to the uh your recording about it is it how you say the government sees the use of long-term care as a solution to the housing and, and care crisis and using it as a, a stopgap solution. Can you talk a little more about like the stopgap solution like if you can and how that kind of looks like cuz I mean I know the stopgap in an, in another way but not in what they're referring to it as.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that a really good example of this is um the change in legislation happening right now with long-term care facilities. In Ontario, where if you are a like long-term hospital patient and are technically able to or would be would qualify for long-term care, you can be forced to move into long-term care facilities that you don't consent to living in um, or having to pay astronomical hospital fees. Um, instead, which so many disabled people can't, of course, because of the enforced poverty of disability. Um, And so we see this as exactly a stopgap solution to the um, thousands of people who are in need of housing and home supports. Um, And then in terms of intellectual disability specifically, I think it's it's really important to see long-term care within this context because there's so many people, tens of thousands of people, on the waitlist to receive community supports, um, to receive funding, to receive, or even qualify for the stage where you're able to get onto the waitlist to receive housing. Um, and so we see long-term care as okay. Well, we don't have any group homes available. We don't have any. Um, access to direct support available. And so as a result, long-term care is supposed to be a solution um, and it is often supposed to be a solution in like the short term, but it ends up being the long-term because of how long those waiting lists are because there isn't a growing stock. And I think like it's increasingly the case that long-term care facilities are the stopgap solution because of how much money we're investing into them um, at large. So there's a huge increase in stock in long-term care, but the growth of disability housing and specifically any form of housing with some supports um, is so stagnant that we don't see a real, um, like we see a shift towards nursing homes. And this is the case, too, with like social housing, where our social housing lists are like 20 years in some places in Ontario. And so where are you supposed to live if you're getting $400 a month in ODSP payments and can't access social housing? Like where are you supposed to go? Um, And so more more often we're seeing people go into long-term care.
1: And I I liked the, the, well, I won't say I liked, but when I heard you, the uh, part with Patrick and his struggles that he's been through, um, the part that got me at the end there was, or in there was about the fact that community and social ties are what keep us, help keep us safe, and that the fact that institutions are fundamentally tearing you away from this. I mean, like, I agree, like, community is so important to a lot of people where you have that sense of belonging. And uh, without that, like you feel like you're left alone and not sure what to do.
2: Absolutely. And so um, I think Patrick's story, which is one of um, being forced into an institution um, is a really important one and one that we're going to see more often because of that um, piece that I was just talking about, which is that If you're in a hospital in London, Ontario, you can – and have been there for a while and there's no long-term care facilities in your city, they can force you into a long-term care facility in like Sudbury where you don't have any family, where you don't have any support and family and support we know is so important to – um preventing the harms of institutionalization, preventing the harms of especially places like long-term care facilities, where through the pandemic we know that like without people's families and without their communities, people were being force fed and forced to go without food, forced to go without bathing, forced to go without a catheter change. Um, and so those pieces are like really important to keeping each other safe. And we know, I think, in like the like everyday violences of institutions, like the neglect or the lack of food, but then there's like the more significant pieces and the more extremely violent pieces, like that which Patrick suffered, which is being assaulted and abused within your institution, and if there isn't family there to advocate for you, if you're someone who doesn't necessarily communicate um, orally, then you might not have that same level of access to phone calls and Zooms and all those pieces where family members can like see your um, your state of being and like see if you're being bruised and all of those pieces um, that like are really scary and shouldn't ever happen. Like I think they point to, you know, needing to not have these places, but in the interim, as we like move towards deinstitutionalization, we do need safety and we do need to prevent the harms of isolation.
1: Exactly. And then reading on about Tyson's situation, how he had, before he was even in where he was, he had access to what he needed, and like technology and then when he got put into that his situation his access to technology community and education that he the life he created was all taken from him like it 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 sucks that it's like you get put into that place and then not have access to those things that you really want to have
2: yeah for sure and i think like I mean, in Tyson's case, it was shifting out of the – like aging out of youth services. And, you know, that's a really important piece of the institutionalization pipeline where you might have a lot of access to supports through high school, but then all of a sudden you turn 18 or you turn 21 and they're all yanked away from you. And then I think like in terms of long-term care, that like – Removal of um, technology and removal of things that you need um, is is really apparent. Like I, I talk about this in the episode, but one of the the challenges or limits to the interviews that I do and the conversations I do with folks who are institutionalized into long term care is that they have enough resources from perhaps their family or some other form um, that they're able to have internet. But that is such a privilege and is not given to people within many long-term care facilities. And so we see like internet prices that maybe like are super limited where it's you're spending $200 to get internet in your nursing home, even though they already have it there um, and they're just not letting residents use it. And so like all of those pieces and especially the removal of people's communication technology is... Um, really, again, are are factors that lead to violence, that lead to isolation. And ultimately, I think are like really dangerous forms of ableism that are so prevalent in institutions.
1: And uh, when I was reading about Shoshana, about the interview you had with her and how it reminded you about that as a society we will be judged by how we treat our most vulnerable members especially during the pandemic like that took a toll on a lot of people and there was like a huge shift from people what they were doing to like not sharing what they wanted to do because they were like okay am i going to make it through this um this this chaos or should i resort to something else it's like the, the pandemic alone took a toll on a lot of people.
2: Yeah. Um, the pandemic took such a significant toll on disabled people in institutions, and I think especially in long-term care facilities, but really everywhere. And I know from everyone I've spoken to in long-term care that like, it really negatively impacted their health because they weren't able to access Um, the treatments and supports that they needed and especially their mental health of living in isolation for two now, three years. Um, And then of course, like we know that more than 20,000 people have died in residential institutions. And if you survived it, you still have to cope with that, um, huge loss and like having your roommates or your floor mates or people you met around the dinner table dying at such high rates and high volumes is really, really um, devastating. And I don't think we as a society have grieved those losses. And I don't think especially we have responded to the loss within community and within institutions and the ongoing role and impact of those, of those deaths and violences.
1: Yeah. I wanted to circle back because you mentioned something about uh, like the care that some people get while they're in these places about not having access to things, especially like personal hygiene and like being only able to like, shower once a week and I was like I I read that and I after listening to it and I was like I, it, it appalls me that they would even like put that such a huge limitation on people and only allowing them access to hygiene stuff like very little and it's just like they don't understand the importance of that like for personal care for people.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I think it it really shows you know, the really, um, original harms of institutionalization, which is like to rob people of their dignity and personal hygiene and access to any forms of, um, what you need to survive are so limited within institutions and robbing people of that is such a, such a terrible harm that I think we see has really deadly consequences if we look at for instance I talk about this in the episode but the but Chris Gladders who was a disabled father who used medical assistance in dying partially as a response to the really horrific conditions he was forced to live in in his retirement home which um, where they weren't changing his catheter they where they weren't showering him, where they weren't where they hadn't transferred him to a bath in months and months um, and so like even though it seems like something so simple as a shower or as going to the washroom, it's really something that impacts people's quality of life and ultimately has really. Fatal consequences.
1: And on the topic of the MAID, medical assistance in dying, like, have you heard of a lot of stories where people have like often wanting to resort to this uh, because they didn't feel like they were being heard or they're they're like feeling ignored?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, in terms of medical assistance in dying, we know that within long-term care facilities it has a much higher usage and we know that from lots of anecdotal reporting but also from news stories and blog posts that people are choosing medical assistance in dying in long-term care facilities because they didn't they don't want to have to live through another lockdown they don't want to have to live through another Week or month of everything being shut down and not being able to leave their bedrooms and not be able to be showered or get a breath of fresh air. Um, and you know, like a really big part of the expansion of medical assistance in dying was that there was a case that came forward in front of the Quebec courts where John Truchon, who was a disabled man forced to live in a nursing home wanted to ap- apply for MAID even earlier in his life because he hated living in the institution and he felt he had no other option.
1: And so when we talk about MAID, there's also the discussion about how like people can go about doing that because it, a lot of the times it requires um, approval by a doctor or like if there's a person that say, has like say power of attorney over someone else, it makes things a little more tricky because you have to, like obviously we don't wanna see people going down that road to using it as an option, but there are people that have to, I guess, meet certain criteria or have the right consent in place, I guess, in order for that to actually happen.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think like guardianship and power of attorney over someone is a really important piece of this conversation. Um, because we know it is so prevalent and we know that people are being forced into settings and conditions that they don't want because of like the state's power of attorney over them or um, having a different person who has power over them. And in terms of medical assistance and dying, it it's a really slippery slope to... Um expanding um death for people, particularly people under guardianship and under um like protection orders
1: i mm-hmm. I just wanted to like share with you a little of like as you, I've mentioned before, our council is doing uh, the presentation on. The long term care and aging in place. So, one of the things that we were talking about is uh, as a topic in it is being frightened about losing our identities and our freedom. And the part that I touched on a little bit in the um, towards the end of my part of it, was saying that in, when it comes to long term care homes, we're scared that we will no longer have the choice to do what we want and that other people have more power over us. So reminding people to make sure that we continue to speak up and make sure that people are respecting us on who we are, what we want to do, and where we want to live. It's part of the speech that I'm doing on my on the presentation, but I was reminded of a quote that I found from Sarah Jamma saying that we don't really need long-term care homes. If we understand aging and disability as inevitable, we must restructure society to fund accessible homes, full attendant care, all meds and assisted devices and proper palliative care, because without this, we're coercing families into separation.
2: I think that when we have this conversation about power um, and maintaining our our sense of power over ourselves, um, it is limited by long term care facilities. And as Sarah saying, it within society, we're forced into long term care facilities because of our lack of access to housing, because of our lack of access to quality home care, because of our lack of access to um, medications and treatments and physiotherapists and all of those things that help keep us well. Um, And so it's like we're, we're under the fate of two pieces. One, a society that doesn't really care about disabled people and the second is that within that society because we don't want to care for disabled people we've created conditions that make it really terrible to become disabled where you're forced into a long-term care facility um even if you don't want to be in one simply because you don't have the amount of money required for making an accessible house for um finding attendant services for Ensuring that there's safe overnight 24 hour care. And right now we're fully shifted towards long term care. So, the only really the only place where you're able to access 24 hour care is in a nursing home. But there's so many people who are able to live in community and just require more supports and just require more services. Um, and we have to stop shifting people into long-term care because at the end of the day, it'll always result in people not being able to make the decisions that they want people being um, forced to choose between two meals that they can't really eat, or if they're a vegetarian, not being able to eat at all. Um, And we as a society are so much better when we have disabled people in our communities when we learn with disabled people um, and when we build our communities with disabled and sick people at the center as opposed to building them, building our communities such that disabled people are on the outside. Um, And I think that shift and like that that challenge to move forward um, is really important and is one that requires us to shift away from long-term care That requires us to shift away from all forms of institutions.
1: So, to kind of bring this home, I just wanted to ask what got you so interested in wanting to advocate and do what you've been doing with these podcasts? Like, where did your background come from, and like, what made you want to advocate?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think my own experiences as a person labeled with a developmental disability has been that of um, institutionalization and like really medicalization. And I think as someone who has the privilege to live in community, um, it's important to like always take and always fight for our community to be around us, to be surrounded by fellow disabled people instead of being um, the rare disabled person around. And so it really started for me in a desire to find my disabled community and realizing that I'll never be able to find disabled community in our current society because of the use of institutionalization because of the use of long-term care and nursing homes and group homes and all of those really um, institutional forms of containment. And so, yeah, that's that's how I got involved. I'm also from Winnipeg and Winnipeg is further behind Ontario in terms of deinstitutionalization. And so growing up, there was three major institutions um, in my area And they really like, I think we have an obligation to like take those with us and to um, continue the work of advocating.
1: So if you were to say have like a couple of takeaway messages that you felt were important for people to know, what do you think that would be?
2: I think that they would be Number one, that there is a way that we can restructure society such that we don't need long term care facilities that we don't need institutions, and instead that we are able to have beautiful, sustainable communities filled with intergenerational inter um, cross disability wonderful people and that requires us to shift away from um, ableism and from institutionalization. Um, The second thing that I would say is a takeaway is that um, right now we think that long-term care is inevitable and it's not inevitable. We can build communities, we can build societies where there's millions of options for where you're going to live and how you're going to be cared for and you're able to make the decisions. Um, and I think like at the end of the day, this is all about being able to be part of a community and being able to make decisions about where we live, who cares for us, how we're supported, um, and in what way we're treated. Um, and the last thing, I guess, is that right now we're in a time of really large-scale institutionalization into long-term care institutions. Um, And we won't ever be able to know all the harms that happen within these institutions. But we know from the outset that these are places of a lot of harm, of a lot of abuse and neglect. And it's not just bad apples or like a bad long-term care home or a bad worker it's the case of the bigger system that really forces those harms on people. Um, Yeah, I feel like that's it.
1: I don't think you could have put that any better.
2: That's so nice, thank you.
1: And you know, I appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today to discuss these important issues. It'll help bring awareness to people that We want to see change in long-term care, and I think this is the start of how to go about it. As we all know, things take time to change, especially with the government, so these little steps can help make things down the road go a lot smoother.
2: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on today.
0: Community Unmuted is brought to you by Community Living Ontario. This season was created in partnership with members of the Council of Community Living Ontario, including our host, former Council President and current Vice President, Nico Pupella. The show is produced and recorded by me, Nicholas Wong, with audio editing and theme music by Helena Crowbath. Special thanks to our guest for this episode, Megan Linton.